Good morning, everyone. So do we love his presence? Yes. You know, with Randy here speaking about the Gideons and you know, last night or two nights ago, Ann and I were out to dinner and um, one of the local high schools had a graduation parade going through and people were going to dismiss the kids. Kids going out. The parade, so the parade has already started. That was where I was going. Is There was a parade of the graduates going through. And some of the grads were throwing candy out to the people lined up along the streets. And just the image I had this morning as we were talking about that is, you know, if we go along a parade route and we start throwing these things out, everybody's going to come running, right? You're going to knock people over to get to this. What if we started throwing this out along that same? Might hurt some people, but maybe that's what we need. But... We need to have a value of God's word that supersedes everything else. Um, looking around the room right now that, you know, every single one of you, I want you to think about, have you ever had a difficult stretch in your life? Things that have just puzzled you on, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to have the strength to go one more day? You know. Are you completely satisfied with your walk with Christ right now? Okay, I want every one of you to answer these things in your hearts. You know, you don't have to speak them out loud. This is between you and God. If you're not at the apex of your Christian walk, if you're not satisfied completely with everything that God is doing in your life right now, what more is it that we can do? And that's going to be the subject of the next two weeks that I'm going to be presenting the word to you. And we're calling it the foundational four that there's a lot of things that we need to do to walk this thing out with Christ. Um, the first two that I'm going to be speaking about this morning are two that everybody's heard about. Um, some of the subtitles I had for it was, um, there you go, the foundational four is up there, kind of give you an idea what we're talking about, is one of the subtitles I wanted to give this was food and money. Two of our favorite things, right? Everybody likes to eat? Is there anybody in here that does not like to eat? Okay. Does there anybody that would refuse money if I threw it out here to you? Because can we say food and money are pretty important parts of our lives? Okay. And next week I'll be following up with the word and prayer. So those are two things also that foundationally we need to have as part of our lives. Um, so I'm considering these are four foundational Christian disciplines and how frequently and intensely we practice these disciplines gives you a glimpse into your faith, gives you a level of a measure of the trust that you have in God as to how you practice these things. And I was going to do somewhat of an informal poll and ask every single one of you is, do you pray every day? Okay, and I hope every single one of you can say, yes, I do. I pray every single day, multiple times a day. And the word even says to pray without ceasing, right? So as we're sitting here, you guys should be ignoring me <laughs> and praying. Okay. What about the word? Do you read the word every day? Do you listen to the word? It doesn't have to necessarily just be reading it, but are you hearing the word every single day? And let's tie that back into food. Do every single one of you eat meals every day? Breakfast, lunch, dinner possibly, snacks in between. What about the Word of God? Are you getting that into you every single day? If you're not, you're starving yourself spiritually. And that's the most important part of us. Now we'll get into the little more sticky situations. All right? Keeping that informal poll going, how many of you tithe? Okay, and it doesn't have to be daily. You know, when you get a paycheck, do you tithe off your paycheck? Do you get a... You know, inheritance, do you tithe off of that? And real simple definition, what is a tithe? 10%. Not 9.7, not 6. God asks a tithe, 10%. And then the one that I'm going to be starting this morning off with is fasting. How many of you have ever fasted? Let's actually have a show of hands. How many of you have ever had a fast, a voluntary fast, let's put it that way, 
Okay, any of you have been in for medical procedures, you know, they tell you you're not allowed to eat for X number of hours before the procedure, before the test. So that's not a voluntary fast. But how many of you have voluntary fasted? So that's what we're gonna be talking about this morning to start with, is fasting. Is all of these are spiritual disciplines that when you do them, you're offering them up to the Lord. You're saying, God, I need answers. I need help. I can't do this on my own. I need your help. And so sometimes you have to go beyond just asking for help. You have to do another level of commitment, another level of the faith that you have that you're saying. So let's open up in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your blessings that we can meet freely, like our brothers and sisters in Kenya right now that are being excluded, that they are not allowed to meet and come together and worship you. We thank you that we have that freedom here in this country and that you've given us that freedom based on the sacrifices that many have given over the years. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it will sink deep into our hearts, that it will change us and not allow us to just continue on day after day in the same ways. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody doing good this morning? Have a good breakfast? Okay. I hope everybody had a good breakfast as we talk about fasting. And just a little background with that. The, um, teaching on tithing and fasting this morning. The word tithe or tithing is mentioned 30 times in the Old Testament and six times in the New Testament. And if you add in offerings and giving, those numbers would be a lot higher. But the words tithe and tithing are mentioned 36 times in the Bible. And for a comparison, fast or fasting is mentioned 72 times in the Old Testament and 50 in the New Testament. And one of the principles that if you ever hear any teachings on the Bible and studying it is the more frequently God talks about something, he wants us to pay attention to it. And so if fasting is mentioned more than tithing, should we pay attention to it? Yes. Okay, so we're looking at 122 times that just those words, fast and fasting, are mentioned. And out of my study Bible, the definition of a fast is this. It's time set aside to mourn or pray with no provision for one's normal food needs. Fasting is a voluntary denial of food. Fasting is an action contrary to that first act of sin recorded in Genesis, which was eating what was forbidden. Fasting is refusing to eat what is allowed. So that's the biblical definition out of the study Bible of what fasting is. So now the question is, why should we fast? What's the purpose of fasting? Is it just to make yourself miserable? Okay. The simple reason is, if Jesus did it, shouldn't we? Okay, did Jesus fast? Okay. One of the first accounts we have of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, is before his spiritual battle with Satan, what did he do? How long? 40 days and 40 nights. That's a pretty committed fast, isn't it? And so what we can learn just real quickly out of that is Jesus didn't go into the battle with Satan knowing that his physical strength was enough, knowing that what he had in his natural humanness was enough to deal with what he was going to be facing. So for 40 days and 40 nights, he sought the power of God. He communed with God to give him the spiritual strength to withstand the things that Satan was going to be bringing against him. And so if Jesus did it, that should be good enough for us, right? That Jesus did it. He set the example. One of the definitions or one of the words for Christians is Christ followers. So follow Christ, the examples that he set. And we don't do it to try and gain attention of people, right? If I stood up here and told you I've been fasting for the last, you know, 12 days and I'm just all week and just, <laughs> you can't believe how difficult this fast is. Is that going to be honoring to God? Okay. I'm trying to gain attention for myself to say, look how holy I am. And Jesus actually rebuked those that did those kind of things in so many different ways. That if you're doing things to gain the attention and the accolades of man, you're missing the mark. And so when you fast, he says, 
get over it, get rid of the sackcloth, get rid of the things that make it known that you're fasting and allow the father to see it only. And that you're, you're looking to gain his favor. You're looking to gain his insight. So in Matthew 17, 21, um, also illustrates the spiritual warfare that we are to be in and the reason that prayer alone sometimes isn't enough, and I say that very guardedly, is prayer is powerful, but there are so many times in scriptures, and Matthew 17, 21 is one of those times when it says this kind, when he was speaking about the demon that would not come out by prayer only that the disciples encountered. And Jesus said this kind comes only out by prayer and fasting. And so they're connected you have to do some times it has to be coupled together um, speaking to someone earlier this morning they said you know that the times that you're fasting is times that you're to be de- diving even deeper into prayer is it's a time to take that and blend them together even more intimately and another example of that is Matthew if everybody would turn to the book of Matthew easy one for us to find Matthew chapter 6 And again, this is in red letters, if you have that type of Bible. Matthew 6, 16. Jesus said, Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad sad continence, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that you appear, appear not unto men to fast but unto the Father which is in secret, and the Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. So there's two things I want you to pull out of that. Is fasting is something that Jesus says when you do it. It's not something if you feel like doing it. It's when you do it, Jesus said. So it's one of those things that he's supposing. He's laying it on us that this is something you should be doing when you fast. But don't do it to gain the accolades of men. Don't do it like the hypocrites do because they're trying to gain attention. You're doing it in secret, so the Father, when he sees it in secret, he rewards you openly. So fasting is something that Jesus did, and he also says we should do it when you fast. So the question now may be, what are the benefits of fasting? The first one, and we'll talk about that one, is you're being like Jesus. You're following his example. Again, nice and simple, right? Follow Jesus' example. That's a benefit of it. Second benefit is the physical body that if you do, a, you know, there are health fasts that you can do. And it enables the body time to do a cleansing of our systems of toxins that have accumulated in our body due to the chemicals and pollutants that we're exposed to through our food, our drinks, and our air. So just from a health standpoint, a physiological standpoint, sometimes doing a short fast or a long-term fast will actually allow your body to cleanse itself, get the junk out of it that you've put in there. You know, We won't even get into that with the additives and all the other things that can be in your food, right? But sometimes a fast is healthy in that regard. The third benefit is for your soul and your mind. It brings our flesh under submission to the will instead of eating. It's saying we're, we're devoting this time to God instead of eating, and we'll spend that time reading or praying. So it benefits the soul in saying, flesh, you aren't in control. I'm going to subject you to the will of the Father and spend some time without eating food. Um, and then the fourth benefit is a spiritual one. Um, one thing that if you've ever fasted, you notice is a physical body weakens. A lot of your senses actually become more keen is when I've done some long-term fasts, I've never done a 40-day fast, and God's never told me to do that, is that you find that your senses just become really heightened. I mean, peanut butter smells grand (laughs) at the end of a 10-day fast. Just the simple things that we take for granted just smell glorious. And a a spiritual benefit of that is that you physically, you know, as you fast and you allow the body to weaken, your spirit becomes more sensitive, that you can hear God more clearly, that you're tuning into the frequency of God. And so that's the big benefit of fasting, is it brings us to a place where we can truly hear God 
because we're subjecting the flesh to the will of the Father. Um, and just a back note of that is that don't ever fast just for the sake of fasting. Seek God first. Everything that we do, anything that we talk about, we should be seeking God's will first. You know, asking the Holy Spirit, what do I need to talk to? Who do I need to talk to? You know, those divine appointments that many people talk about. A fast isn't something you should just enter into lightly because we talked about it this morning. It's something that you should do because God has directed you to do it. And the, the length of the fast should also be God-ordained. So, you know, don't just say, well, Jesus fasted 40 days. Let's go for it. Okay, who's with me? Okay. A 40-day fast is possible, obviously. We've got multiple recorded um, events of that happening. You know, Moses fasted for 40 days while he was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. He didn't need food. He was in the presence of God. And if you recall that section in Exodus, when he came back down off the mountain after being there 40 days receiving the Ten Commandments, he was irritating to the people because the presence of God was so heavy on them that he glowed. And they couldn't stand it. And so he ended up putting a veil over himself to hide the glory of God. Okay? We're not you know, called to do that. The glory of God needs to be shining forth from us that it does irritate people. Not to irritate them, but just to you know, allow them to see there's something going on. So a fast needs to be ordained by God. Um, I want to talk about some levels of fasting. Is that there's a personal level of fasting. Um, a good example of that is, again, Jesus preparing for the temptation. You know, he's fasted for 40 days. It was him and God. Um, another example is in 2 Samuel um, chapter 12, verse 16, is where it says that um, this account in 2 Samuel is where um, Bathsheba has delivered the illegitimate child that David um, fathered through her, and the child was dying. And it goes on to say that David fasted and wept for the child. And the thing that puzzled his servants and his, the people around him is that when the child died, when, he, when David found out that the child had died, he cleaned himself up and had some food. And they're saying, you know, it confused him. It's like, you, you know, when the child was dying, when he was alive, you fasted and you wept. Now that he's dead, you're cleaned up and good. And David said, while he was yet alive, I did not know if the Lord would save his life. And so he was fasting and praying, interceding for God to have mercy on this child. And God's will was not for that to happen. When David realized that, his time of fasting was over. He had got the answer that he was looking for. It wasn't the one he wanted, but it's the one that God gave him. So when you're seeking for a breakthrough or a struggle, sometimes more than prayer is needed. Prayer and fasting, fasting and weeping, they're paired together in Scripture frequently. So when you're struggling with something that God just doesn't seem to be answering you, maybe you need to take it to another level of commitment and tie it in with fasting. Another level of fasting is within the local church. We've had fasting that we've called for in the church here um, numerous times over the years. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, again, looking at Scripture, Acts chapter 13, verse 2. And this is the church at Antioch where they first became, were called Christians, which was a mocking term, actually. But in Acts 13, before Barnabas and Saul, who eventually, you know, we know as Paul, were sent out to do the work that God ordained them to, the church in Antioch fasted and prayed for them and laid hands on them before they sent them out. So it's a time of sending out that fasting and prayer can be coupled together. And then on into um, Acts chapter 14, verse 23, before setting elders in every church that they were at, they fast and prayed for God to give them guidance as to who should be the elders. So it's not just a haphazard thing that fasting and prayer are done to gain ins insight on God's will for certain events. Another level of fasting is the entire body of believers. And a good example, again, of that is Esther chapter 4, verse 3. And this is when the, Jew the Jews were in captivity, and one of the servants of the king had a plan to exterminate the Jews. He hated Mordecai. He hated the Jews, and so he actually was able to get a plan approved by the king that every Jew in the kingdom was to be killed on a certain day. 
And when Mordecai, when the people, when the news got out to all the provinces where the Jews lived, they had a national day of fasting, a nationwide Hebrew nation of fasting. And it says that um, in Esther chapter 4, it says, was, Great was the mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing when they heard of the plan. And you know the rest of the story that Esther was able to invite Haman and the king to a you know, little banquet and revealed the plan, and Haman got himself executed. And the decree went out that the Jews were allowed to defend themselves, and they were able to, obviously, God preserved his people once again. So there's an example of a whole body of believers. You know, and as a Christian body, we need to be fasting and praying numerous times for the things that are going on in the world. Um, this is a little different turn with this one, is a national fasting. And I kind of hit on that with the body of believers, but a national fasting. Um, turn to Jonah. The book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah was one of the minor prophets. And again, hopefully you all know the story of Jonah, that God told him to go to the wicked city of Nineveh. And just to give you a little background, the city of Nineveh was a very large city, a very important city at that time in history. Um, the different things I read, they estimate the population was about 150,000 people. So, you know, for our area, a little bigger than the city of Erie. So, pretty big city for the time. And Jonah was told to go there, proclaim the gospel to them, or the, you know, the repentance um, of a very wicked ki kingdom. And you, we know he said, nope, not going to do it. They deserve to die. Jumped in the whale, took the other direction, right? <laughs> well, that wasn't his plan, but that's what happened, right? So the whale delivered him where he was supposed to be, and he went and did what he was supposed to. And I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. Is that Jonah has gone into Nineveh. He's proclaimed the word of God. And so the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and laid his robe from him and covered himself with a sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. So here's a wicked kingdom, approximately 100, 150,000 people that all hear the word of God, and it breaks them. And they all get into sack. You know, even the animals weren't allowed to eat. That's how serious they knew this was. That, you know, God had decreed that they need to die. And so they fasted, they mourned, they wept, and they said, we don't know if God will change his mind if we do this, but what else do we have? And so they fasted and sought God's favor, and we know the end of the story is that God spared them. He saw the turn in their hearts and that they repented of their sins. And so an entire city of wicked people turned their hearts to God because of the word of God brought to them by Jonah. Unfortunately, we see the pride and the non-humility in Jonah. Because if you were to read on in verse or chapter 4, the very first part it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Okay. 150,000 people turned their hearts to God, and Jonah was still prideful enough to be angry that they weren't getting what they deserved. Yeah, yeah, uh -oh. God had to teach him a lesson. So national fasting, you know, we see it time and time again. Um, fasting was actually very common in this country in our founding years through the, you know, struggles that we had early on. And I just want to, I'm not going to quote what they've said, but everybody knows who Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson are, right? Pretty prominent founding fathers that we have. They're also considered to be two of the most irreligious of the founding fathers, that their Christianity was non-existent or very weak. Um, both of them actually called for national days of fasting and prayer, numerous times actually. And Thomas Jefferson actually introduced something into the Virginia House of Burgesses 
calling for a national day of fasting and prayer when Boston Harbor was being blockaded by the British. So time and time again, I could stand up here right now and easily read for half an hour all the proclamations that were made by governors and presidents of this country calling for national days of fasting and prayer because they saw the importance of it. Um, if you would bring up the proclamation slide, please, Mark. I'm going to skip to 1863. And this was a couple years into the Civil War. Um, Abraham Lincoln signed a congressional resolution establishing a national day of fasting and prayer. So if they can't bring it up, so be it. But um, I actually found a copy of one of the proclamations that was the Commonwealth of Massachusetts published it. And so fasting prayer is something that our leaders, again, if you can see it, there it is. That's the copy of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts proclamation for a national day of fasting and prayer. And a lot of times, the reason, you know, I like history. You all have come to know that at this point. But one of the things that I think I need to continually bring history up to all of us is because of the, let's put it bluntly, the lies that are out there, that God does not intend for us to be involved in government. As Christians, we're to be disengaged from politics. Okay, absolutely not. Okay. Um, the, everybody's heard of the separation of church and state? Okay. Don't get me started on that one. <laughs> the intent of the founders in writing that was that the state would not have its influence on the church is that the state was to stay out of the, of the happenings of the church. We are to be involved in the church. And when I can cite examples like this, when I can cite Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, prominent founding fathers calling for days of prayer and fasting for the government, does it make much sense that they wanted the church to stay out of the government? Okay, so that's, bear with me. That's part of the reason I bring these things up so often is that we need to understand where we came from because where we're going is not where we started. So when Abraham Lincoln you know, proclaimed this day of fasting and prayer because of what was going on in the country at that time in 1863, the Civil War, is he is saying, what we've got going on, the struggles that we're facing, we can't get through this on our own. I mean, this was tearing the nation apart. Brothers were fighting brothers. Fathers were fighting sons because of the divide in the country at that time. And so calling on a day of prayer and fasting was something that we needed to do. And there's times, you know, we should be doing that today. Um, you know, this nation is divided in so many different ways. The only thing that can unite us is the love of Christ. Um, one final example, April, April 17th, 1952, President Harry Truman, Democrat, just to bring that out there. He signed a bill making it a federal law proclaiming a national day of prayer. And part of the <clears throat> proclamation is it said that each subsequent president must proclaim a national day of prayer. So here's something from the office of the president saying every single year we need to have a national day of prayer. And he actually added on to it, is every president after me has to proclaim a national day of prayer. So is prayer something important to this country? Unfortunately, in his proclamation, he didn't include the fasting part of it. But So prayer and fasting, they need to be coupled together, is a spiritual discipline. And so, again, as we go through the day, as we go through you know, the weeks, the days ahead, anything that you're struggling with, sometimes you may need to go beyond prayer. You may, add, may need to add in fasting with it because there's a multiplied power, it seems, when you have prayer and fasting because God sees your heart that you're willing to subject your flesh to want, to lack, and say, God, we need to hear from you. You also need to think of fasting as an act of worship. You know, that everything we do is an act of worship, whether it's pleasing to God or displeasing. But if you fast according to the word of God, it pleases God. He honors that. And so think of it as an act of worship. Um, the other part of what I want to talk today is tithe. Food and money are two favorite things. And we all know the scripture that says money is the root of all evil, right? 
Okay, thank you. It's misquoted. I mean, you know, a lot of people will say that, that money is evil. It's the root of all evil. Okay, that's if, and that's why we have to know our scripture. Because if none of you had paid attention to what I said, so I know some of you are paying attention, which is good. But if you had just heard me say that money is evil and you walk out here, okay, money is evil. I shouldn't have it, right? Okay, it's not a good thing. Money is a tool. Money is neutral. It's what you do with it that gives it its power for good or bad. So tithing is a biblical principle. Um, one of the first examples we see of tithing is in Genesis chapter 14. And this is the situation where um, Lot, Abraham's nephew, has been abducted, taken hostage basically, and Abraham goes and rescues him. And in rescuing him against a number of different kings in this area, he comes out with a lot of spoils of war. And when he's going by um, Salem, the king of Salem, the priest of Salem, Melchizedek, comes out, and Abraham, it says, gives him a tithe of the spoils. And just an interesting thing is, where do you think Salem is today? Jerusalem. Salem. So the king of Salem comes out, and Abraham gives him a tithe, gives him an offering of the spoils of war that Abraham had just won. And so we have the initiation of the tithing principle in Genesis chapter 14. And it's also referred to in Hebrews chapter 7, I believe it is, where it is talked about you know, um, the order of Melchizedek, which is who Jesus has come from, from the order of Melchizedek, is that Abraham, even though Abraham is the one that we see as preeminent as a founding father of you know, the faith, and a number of other faiths recognize him as a founder to theirs, is Abraham, even though he was a position of authority and God's favor, he still saw that it was fit to give a tithe to the priest of Salem. Again, looking at Jesus, in Luke 21, Jesus and the disciples were at the temple and they were watching the gifts being brought into the treasury. And this is also an opportunity where um, Jesus rebuked those that did it for show. You know, that if I, again, you know, you, you bring your tithes and offerings up front, we have the buckets up front, and let's say I decided I was going to be really generous one day. You know, and I, let's say, I'll pick those up. I had a pile of bills, okay? And I would, you know, <clears throat> everybody see me? <laughs> Drop it in there and make a show of it because I want to impress people because I want people to say, wow, look how generous he is. Okay, what's my reward? Okay, I've got my reward, you know, your derision, actually. We're not to do it for show. We're do when you bring your offerings to the front, when you bring your tithes up here, you're doing it as an act of worship. Do it humbly. Do it thankfully that God has provided you with something. God's not asking for 100% of your income, is he? What's he want? 10%. He's asking you to give him an offering back of what he's blessed you with. If you have a job, if you're able to earn income, thank God for it. And part of the way we thank God for it is to give him back some of it. Does God need our money? No. Okay, absolutely not. God doesn't work on financial money terms. Do we need to give our money to God? Yes. Okay, as an act of worship, as a submission to him. Because if you read in Luke 6, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 6.10, and that's the one I misquoted originally, is that money is the root of all evil is wrong. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. So if you're able to give your money to God, you're breaking the hold that money can have on your life. You're saying this stuff, where's my $10 bill? This stuff does not control me. Thank you, God, is that you're giving it away. You're saying, God, I need your blessing more than I need that 10%. And when Jesus was standing in the treasury or watching the treasury with the disciples, you know, he saw the rich bringing their gifts and, you know, making a show of it, you know, making sure people noticed them. But then the one he noted was who? The widow who brought how much money? Depending on which translation you read, two mites. And it's, he says she gave all that she had. I mean, I don't know what a tithe of two mites would have been, but it sounds like she gave everything she had at that moment. She said, it's not enough to do what I need to do with. Here it is, God. 
And so to this day, we still recognize her and the offering that she gave is that she gave sacrificially where if you give a, t- t- a tenth or a tithe, that's not really sacrificial giving. That's a tenth of what God has already provided you with. So if he gives you a dollar and you give him a dime, you still got 90 cents left. That's still a lot of money if you look at it in straight terms like that. So tithing is not for God. It's for us. It's an act of worship that opens up our hearts, our avenues for him to bless us. Um, If my wife would come up for a moment. She read a book a few years ago, and she shared some of the information out of it with me, and it really struck me. Um, I'll just kind of preview it a little bit. Is One of the things that they talked about is um, is the American church. No, I will not share. He's going to call me up and then tell you what I'm going to say. <laughs> right? My lovely wife, Anne, everybody who does not know her. So, Rich asked me to share about tithing, not, this isn't on. It's on. on. Not fasting. There's a reason for that, right? I don't like to fast. God has to tell me to do it and make me do it. It's not my favorite thing at all. But I'll give money away all day long if I think it's going to further the kingdom. That's something that is my heart. I'm going to do a shameless plug. Who has ever read The Hole in Our Gospel by Richard Stearns? Anybody in this room? It's not a popular book you see everywhere. Get it. If you have trouble with money, if you don't understand tithing, if you think about the world at large as far as the gospel, read this book. It's one of the best books I've ever read about how we can reach the world. Um, Richard Stearns, by the way, is the president of World Vision. So <clears throat> when we talk about money, we don't, it's not a lack of money that we have in America, so I'm just going to share a couple statistics with you, okay? Um, anybody want to wager a guess what Americans spend on pets in a year? $103.6 billion dollars. One in 10 Americans actually state that they're putting off having children because of their pet expenses. That's how much it affects their life, okay? Plastic surgery. Americans spend $16.5 billion to try to look better. Makeup. I put some on this morning. (laughs) $49.2 billion. We spend $76 billion on the lottery every year. That one gets me. Because if you're going to gamble, how about you gamble with God? If you think this tithing thing might not work, give it a shot. Right? In Richard Stern's book, he talks about what would happen if American churches actually did the word of God and tithe as they're supposed to. Okay. The truth of the matter is 5% of Americans are tithers, and most of them give 2% of their income. That's actually down. During the Great Depression, we were given as Americans 3.3% of our income. So we don't give out of our abundance anymore. Tithers actually make up between 10 and 25% of the typical American church. So that means anywhere from 90 to 75% of the church in America does not tithe. On the contrast, three out of four people who don't go to church make donations to nonprofit organizations. So that 75% of non-churchgoers are giving money to an organization. Now, do you think those organizations that they're giving to are spreading the gospel? If we want to look at why the narrative and agendas are being pushed so greatly in our country, it's because they have the money to back them. 75% of non-church goers are funding those type of projects. I'm going to preach now. You just wanted me to show you (laughs) things. I'm sorry. Um, But here's the reality. He has this book. Why this is so good is because he has a lot of, um, there's charts and there's statistics statistics to back up all the things that he's saying. So I'm not going to get into all of that. Read the book. It's really good. But this is what I want you to hear. 
if the American church, just the American church, not worldwide, if the American church, people who say they're Christians in America, would actually tithe like they're called to do, this is what would happen. Tomorrow, we could wake up to the end of world hunger. We'd solve the clean water crisis. We would provide universal access to drugs and medical care for millions suffering from disease around the world. We would virtually eliminate more than 26,000 daily child deaths. We would guarantee education for all the world's children, and we would provide a safety net for the world's tens of millions of orphans. Just if the American people tithed, not, like you said, gave above your tithe and offering, but actually if they just tithed. Is it okay if I read this? I'm taking too much time. Go ahead. This is just one thing. I just read this paragraph and it's profound. Think about the statement it would make if American Christian citizens stepped up and gave more than all the governments of the world combined because they took Jesus seriously when he said to love our neighbors as ourselves. Terrorists might have a harder time recruiting young men to attack a nation so compassionate. Other wealthy nations might be inspired to follow our example. Adherents of other religions would surely wonder what motivates the Christian to be loving and generous. The global social revolution brought forth by the body of Christ would be on the lips of every citizen in the world and the pages of every newspaper in a good way. The world would see the whole gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, not just spoken, but demonstrated by people whose faith is not devoid of deeds, but defined by love and backed up with action. His kingdom come, his will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is the whole gospel that Jesus proclaimed in Luke 4. And if we would embrace it, it would literally change everything. Amen. So as you can hear, she has a little passion when she talks about things like that. That's why I brought her up. And just hear my heart. I'm not standing up here talking about tithing because I want you to give the church money. The church operates on money, obviously. For us to do the things that God has called us to do, we have to have money. But it's a tool. But the thing I want to emphasize with all of you is if you're not tithing, you're missing out on the blessings of God. And you're also, if you want to turn to Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, and Malachi, the translation of Malachi, is the name means my messenger. And I want you to think about that for a moment. The book of Malachi, when it was written, they said that for 400 years after the book of Malachi was given, is God was silent. He didn't speak to his people anymore for 400 years. Can you imagine not hearing from your loved ones for four days? Four years? For 400 years after the book of Malachi, God was silent to the people. And the next time we hear God speaking is if you turn into Matthew and you hear of John the Baptist, the messenger, the forerunner to Christ. So Malachi the messenger, John the Baptist started bringing the message again. But in the book of Malachi... Most people know the book of Malachi because of chapter 3. You know, all the financial teachings, they go to you know, Matthew, or Malachi chapter 3, and they talk about you know, God's referring to tithing here. But if you read all the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi is just a total rebuking of the people at that time. At that time, the, what Malachi brought to the people was just a rebuke because the priests were corrupt. They were accepting blemished sacrifices. They were keeping the best things for themselves. They were allowing the people to not honor God with their giving. One of the things that Malachi also spoke out against was is that the men were divorcing their Hebrew wives, their Jewish wives, so that they could marry pagan wives. So not only were they divorcing, but they were you know, marrying people that God had told them not to intermarry with. So, I mean, if you want to talk about two strikes against you right there. And then finally, when you get to Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now, says the Lord of hosts. Prove me. He actually says, test me. One place in Scripture where you can bonafidely say, 
God said, tithe and test me if what I say is true. And he goes on to say, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes and he shall not destroy the fruits of the ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit at the time in the field, says the Lord of hosts. So tithing isn't for God. It's for us. It's something that we do to worship him. That your tithe giving, your offering is an act of worship again to God. That if you can take money that God has put into your hand and say, thank you, God, here's some of it back. Here's a portion of it back. You're worshiping God with the things that he's put into your hands. And if you read again in Malachi, what are the benefits of tithing? Because again, we know God doesn't need it. One of the benefits of tithing is what it says in verse 9. It says, you're cursed with a curse for you have robbed me, even the whole nation, because you do not tithe and offer the way I've instructed you to. So one of the benefits of tithing is it breaks a curse caused by robbing God. Another benefit is it says meet in his house. The church needs resources to do the works that it's doing. For the Gideons to give out Bibles, I mean, they could all, all the guys that are involved in the Gideons, all the women, they can give their whole income. You want to give your whole income, Randy, to provide Bibles out there? Put you on the spot. You don't have to answer that. But he shouldn't have to is that the body of Christ needs to partner together and give resources into those that are doing the work. And so part of your tithe, when you tithe here, part of the money that you tithe in here goes right into the missions budget so that we can support missionaries that are in Italy, in Israel, doing the work of God. So meet in his house. Third blessing, or third benefit is the windows of heaven are opened and a blessing's poured out that you can't contain. And think about the fishermen when Jesus said, cast your net on the other side. They'd fished all night. They knew what they were doing. That was their livelihood, and they hadn't caught a thing. Jesus said, throw the net on the other side and see what happens. And they caught such an amount of fish that it was breaking their nets that they didn't have nets strong enough to contain the blessing that God poured out into them. So in tithing, God will open up the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing in your life that you can't contain it, that you'll need your friends to come alongside you and say, what can I do with all this blessing that God's given me? And he'll show you avenues to do that. Benefit four, the devourer is rebuked. The fruit of the ground and the vine will not be destroyed. So the things that you're doing, you may not be a farmer, like the analogy that Malachi was talking about here, but whatever your income source is, God says, I will rebuke the devourer that your income source will not be destroyed. And then benefit five, all nations will call you blessed. That people will see the works that you're doing for God, the things that you're doing to honor and worship God, and they'll say that you're blessed. And then the final benefit is it's an act of worship. Tithing is an act of worship that you're saying, God, thank you. Yeah. So there's benefits to fasting and to tithing. There are acts of worship. There's spiritual disciplines that if you do these things, you're stepping into a higher level of your faith. You're saying, God, I'm not satisfied with where I'm at now. I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to do things in a way that's pleasing to you. So check your hearts. Seek God on the answers to the things you need. But sometimes you have to employ more than just the standard weapons. Sometimes prayer by itself isn't enough. You have to go to the level of fasting. Sometimes the tithe, and again, you know, the things that Ann read is that the Barna research and the things that he's done is that the average Christian American doesn't even tithe. What was it, 2.2%? So compared to the Depression era, when they were given 3.3, the American church right now is not in a good state. And so if we want to be in God's presence, if we want to honor him with all of our being, these are a couple ways we can do it. As we end today, I just want to give a call to the altar. If there's things that in your life that you need God's intervention on, you need answers for, the altar is always open. 
You can come forwards, pray. But I also want to make the call for salvation, that today is the day of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. If you're sitting here today and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, today's the day. Don't wait any longer. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you have not said, I am a sinner, that I have gone against the laws, I've gone against the commands of God, and I'm going to hell apart from the saving love of Christ. Today's the day to come and repent of your sins and say, Jesus, forgive me, that I need you. And let's start a new journey, a new day, that this is going to be your birthday, that we all celebrate our birthdays. You know, my family, I'm notorious, I celebrate birthday month, okay? which is in September if anybody wants to get a head start on that. <laughs> Okay. But today, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, today can be your new birthday. That you start a new life in Christ and stop struggling on your own. Because I was there for years. I'll figure this thing out. I'll do it on my own. I didn't need God. You know, how stupid of a statement is that? We need God. We can't do this thing on our own. He doesn't expect us to do it on our own. That's why he died on the cross. So as we close today, if that's your calling, that you need to give your life to Christ today, repent of your sins and start afresh, make this the day of salvation for yourself. So, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the love of Jesus. We thank you that you're so patient with us that you allow us to str struggle and wrestle with the things that you've shown us. You're not afraid of our questions. You're not afraid of our doubts even. And you even say to test you in the matter of finances. If not, the windows of heaven will be opened up and a blessing poured out upon us. So Lord, as we go forth from this place today, we thank you for your presence. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for walking with us guiding us and also even rebuking us when we've stepped out of line, when we're not following after the things of Christ. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for those that are willing to give their lives over to Christ, that they will see the things that you have ordained for them to step into. So. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So again, if it's something that you're feeling called that you need to do today, do not leave this place without taking care of the business of your life in Christ. Come forwards and get it started today. Otherwise, go and be blessed and have a great day. And we'll continue the foundational four next week. Thank you. <laughs>